Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the second of our Faith in Life lectures for the 2016-2017 season. Uh, we're grateful that you came out on a beautiful fall night. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present this series, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you. Uh, I've in, uh, this is the 14th year of the season, as I mentioned, and I always do like to open by asking how many of you have not been to a Faith in Life event uh, in the past? So a handful of you. Special welcome to all of you. I'm glad you are here. Um, in the 14 years of our, our series, we have covered a lot of topics. Uh, I was actually chatting with my son, Sam, tonight, who asked what the topic was. And I told him faith and hospitality, and he said, oh, I think we've covered that one before. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually quite sure that we have not. Um, so I'll thank Sam later for his comments. Um, Anyway, we are delighted tonight to have a gentleman. You can read about his formal bio in your program tonight. I always like to lift up a couple of other facts about our speakers that may not be in a formal program. Um, one of them is that he's a pastor's kid. Uh, he grew up, uh, was born in Japan, actually, to a Lutheran pastor missionary. I was chatting with another pastor here tonight who said he probably needs our prayers as a result of that. Um, <laughs> He attended Luther College, where he majored in religion, interestingly, and then went on to law school at the University of Minnesota, served as a lawyer for a number of years before ultimately joining Marriott, where, of course, now he leads that organization, the first non-Marriott family member to do so. We are delighted to have him here tonight. Will you help me welcome Mr. Arnie Sorensen? Thank you. Thank you, Tim, uh, and thank you all for coming out. It's great to see you all on, out on a weeknight, uh, and great to see this uh, parish that I've heard about uh, from friends for a long time, a uh, number of friendly faces here. I want to start by welcoming my wife, Ruth, who uh, condescended to come with me to the Midwest this weekend. It's great. It's always... It's always a special treat to have you in the audience, although it makes me a little fearful because she's the one afterwards who will say, why did you say that? <laughs> what were you thinking? And my sister Mary is here, whose birthday is today. And it's, it's Tim's birthday today, too. It's, it's, not, it's not decent to say how many years, but it's, a, it's one that ends in a zero, so it's a, it's a big one, and uh, I'm sure she'd appreciate a hug as she leaves. Happy birthday, Mary. Uh, and Ruth's folks, my in-laws, Paul and Loie Christensen, are here from Red Wing. Thank you for driving up. Great to have you here. Uh, great, you're, you're a great support. And, and we've got uh, lots of other friends and family here. Bob and Barb, did Barb make it? Uh, she's still with the cable guy. Uh, and John and Jenny, uh, who are uh, good members here, and I see Warren and Sonia, it's great to see you all. I did uh, also discover at least one Marriott associate who I met tonight. Any other Marriott people here? Oh, there's a, there's a, few, there's a few hands. Welcome, uh, thank you for coming out. Uh, really great to see you. Uh, that kind of family here as well. So, uh, faith and hospitality. Um, I don't know whether, in fact, we gave you another title for the speech. Uh, I sent my assistant a couple of times the suggestion that we talk about uh, practicing hospitality in an inhospitable world. Uh, and that will be something that I actually talk about more than faith and hospitality. I want to talk about the, the concept of faith first in uh, the work environment and confess that I find that a, a bit of a riddle uh, and a, a, um, harder for me to stand here and talk about how my faith impacts the way I work at Marriott than I think in many respects it might be for other people who uh, observe and have the objectivity to basically say, okay, here's what we see about uh, the way you conduct business. Uh, Mary and I and our siblings are uh, two of four uh, born to Lutheran missionaries in Japan, uh, and uh, of course you know from that that our folks were 
willing to proclaim the faith literally uh, in a foreign land, in a foreign tongue, uh, and in a place where uh, we were, we stuck out. Uh, in fact, we had a little cottage in uh, northern part of Japan near Nagano where the Winter Olympics were later held. Uh, and the cottage was in a, pla a place called Gaijin Muda, which means foreigner's village. That was a big sign uh, over the drive as we entered. So we knew exactly where we belonged. Uh, but so I, I sometimes feel a little bit like a coward when I say, okay, well, if they could go to Japan, totally foreign place uh, in the 50s, uh, and proclaim their faith, am I simply a coward uh, to be, uh, what, uncomfortable, maybe, in, in using the same boldness uh, that they did in their work in Japan? Uh, but obviously part of that is I run a company that is uh, in 110 different countries. We have 500,000 people that wear our name badge every day uh, and uh, take care of our guests around the world. Uh, and they represent all cultures and all faiths. Uh, and uh, for me to suggest that, that my faith is uh, somehow more important than theirs doesn't seem to be a constructive way to run the company. Uh, and so I don't. Uh, and and it, it causes me to stand back and say, okay, well, why then is my faith relevant to the work? Uh, and I, there, are, there are three possible answers to that. One is that I think people know that I'm an active Lutheran uh, and that I take that part of my life quite seriously. It's not hidden from anybody. Uh, and that example by itself, however subtle, uh, may, may mean something to some. Uh, I think the second thing is the concept of faithfulness, not necessarily my faith, but uh, the importance of having a faith is something that, in fact, I do talk about, and I think we talk about as a company. It is not necessarily our saying you must have a religious faith or you must practice a religion in a traditional sense, uh, but we think it's important to have a long-term perspective. We think it's important to think about uh, the meaning that you're getting from your work. Uh, we think it's important that you think about the impact that your work is having. And all of those things uh, can and should lead to a, a, an idea about faith, an idea about uh, our relationship to the world and maybe uh, to things beyond this world. Uh, and so we will get in conversations about uh, faith traditions. Uh, one of the things that is a, a great pleasure of my job is the ability to go all around the world uh, and listen to people in different cultures talk about what they're doing. Uh, I was in the Middle East three weeks ago, and we fit in a, a quick visit to the Grand Mosque in Abu Dhabi. Has anybody seen it? Anybody here? Uh, it is unbelievable uh, marble structure, massive. Uh, the, it would have been the largest mosque in the world, except the ruler of Abu Dhabi knew that it would not be right for him to build a mosque bigger than the mosque in Mecca. Uh, so he kept it a step shy of that. But to be able to be there and talk to our associates who uh, uh, practice the Islamic faith and listen to them talk about their traditions is, I think, a very much fair game uh, and in a way is a, uh, a way to encourage people to have faithfulness and to be willing to embrace faithfulness. I think the third, third way that faith could be relevant is uh, how does it impact character? How does it impact my character? How does it impact the decisions we make as leaders uh, in our businesses or in our schools or in our families or the other things that we do day-to-day -day life? Uh, and that, too, is a question which is, um, it's a complicated one to answer. I mean, I think we could, we could start by saying, well, shouldn't it be clear that you shouldn't lie or cheat? Yeah, that's, that's probably a reasonably good conclusion. So don't commit securities fraud. Uh, don't do business in a way with your partners uh, or your customers that is, is fundamentally about taking advantage of them or being dishonest with them. But then you get to uh, the, the much harder decisions, uh, and it is, to me, a whole lot less clear how faith necessarily, even in my case, impacts the decisions we're making. I'll use a, a, a very specific example right after 9-11. Uh, all of you remember that uh, horrific day. Uh, we sat in the boardroom in Bethesda, Maryland, where our company's headquarters, watching the t uh, TV at the end of the room. And uh, you know, we were all consumed by the uh, what first bizarre notion of watching these Twin Towers burn and then ultimately seeing them fall. 
we had an 800-room hotel that was part of the World Trade Center complex. Almost nobody remembers that. It was 40 stories tall, uh, a big building in any other place, but because those two towers were each 100 stories tall, uh, nobody really focused on that. When the two towers uh, came down, the hotel was flattened like a pancake. Uh, and uh, fortunately, relatively few lives were lost because they had a few hours to clear the place out. Uh, and it was, you know, it, we, we were, I suppose, a, a little bit slow on the uptake, but it, it was hours before we stopped and thought selfishly, this is bad for our business. Uh, because we were, we were consumed, as everybody was, by the tragedy of that day. Well, then, immediately afterwards, it has a profound impact to our business. Uh, Wardman Park Marriott in Washington, D.C., uh, it's about uh, 12, 1,300 rooms, I don't remember precisely. Big group house, uh, full year average occupancy, probably in the 70, 75% range, so maybe 1,000 rooms occupied every night. In the weeks after 9-11, the rooms occupied in the hotel would be five or six. Count them on one hand. Uh, and those hotels and hotels all across the country were empty. Initially, of course, airplanes were grounded. Uh, nobody knew whether there was going to be another event. Uh, and uh, we, were, we, we were afraid. And so we stayed home. And it was really much of the next year before people start to tentatively get back and start to travel. Well, I go through all of this because it has a profound impact to the jobs of the people that we employ in our hotels. Think about Wardman Park. Typically would have something like 1,500 associates working there. There's no, nothing for 1,500 associates to do when there are five customers in a hotel. Uh, and by the way, if you continued to employ 1,500 customers, uh, the place would go bankrupt fairly quickly uh, because you'd have uh, the full expense burden but none of the income coming in. So we sat around, uh, not just focused on that hotel, but focused on a portfolio of hotels, and said, what are the things that we can do? Uh, what are the decisions we make? Well, one of the decisions we make, made, which we were uh, you know, proud of, we thought it was a, a, um, a long-term uh, uh, good decision, is we said, we're going to grandfather health care eligibility for all of our people for a full year. Uh, now, basically, you have to work at least 32 hours a week to be eligible under our rules at that time to be eligible for health care benefits. In an environment in which there were five people in a hotel and you couldn't get your hours, uh, the last thing we wanted was for folks to lose the, uh, their health care eligibility. So we, ma we made that step, and lots of associates appreciated it. Is that a step which is influenced by character or faithfulness? Uh, maybe. Uh, does it matter to you, though, why we made that decision? Uh, does it matter to you that we couldn't protect all of the jobs and all of the income that the 1,500 people in that hotel had? Uh, it would, would to meet a, stand, a test of faithfulness, would it require actually that I pounded the table and said, none of those 1,500 jobs should be impacted in that hotel? I didn't do that. And so I think in some respects, th this, is, this is why you get to this riddle, why I get to this riddle of Okay, does, does faith connect directly to a decision that we make in the marketplace, in the work that I do every day? And I think it's hard uh, to say necessarily it does. I, I believe that it influences who I am, uh, and I hope I make decisions which reflect that, uh, but they're, they're not crystal clear, uh, and they're, they're uh, decisions that still have to be made very much in the re real world. Go to this motive question just for a second. If you thought we made that decision about health, uh, grandfathering health care eligibility uh, because we were generous and we cared about our people, that sounds pretty good. Uh, what if we made that decision because we thought this is a way for us to make sure we retain our people uh, and that they don't run away from us and we have lower turnover? Uh, and that, in fact, long-term, it is in our financial interest to, provi to provide uh, grandfathered eligibility for health care. You get into this question around motive. I had, uh, about five years ago, I was at a conference and we spoke on corporate social responsibility and we had uh, a Harvard professor, Michael Porter, who was there, who's done a, a bunch of writing on this. 
and he asked me to lead a small group discussion and then come back and report to the larger group. And so we went off and we talked about uh, corporate social responsibility. And in the small group, people say, well, what, did Mar what does Marriott do? And I said, well, we could talk about things like uh, we've got a program in the Amazon and we've got a program with Children's Miracle Network and we've got a number of other programs which are important to us. But I said, actually, I think the thing that's most profound is that we are committed to creating careers for our people. Uh, for them to be able to grow in their careers, uh, to support their families, uh, to build lives that uh, derive from having the confidence in an income, uh, to grow in their jobs no matter what their pedigrees, no matter what kind of education they had. Uh, and uh, that to us is the most profound thing we can do every day in what we do in our business. And a number of voices in that conversation said, that's not enough, that's in your self-interest. Because it goes back to this motive question. If that's in our self-interest, can it at the same time be an act of faithfulness or an act that is inspired by faith? In any event, uh, I think it's such a tough riddle that I'm not going to talk more specifically about that, but instead talk about some of the decisions that we make, uh, particularly in this divisive world that we live in, uh, and the way the world looks at them. Uh, and maybe they can be useful uh, as you have conversations about what are the right decisions to be made, what's the right role of a public company CEO or of a business person uh, as it relates to the issues of the day. Uh, before doing that, let me just take a minute to talk about uh, Marriott. I hope you all have heard of the company. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've been, uh, ne next year will be our 90th anniversary. Uh, and uh, famously, my, my boss, Bill Marriott, who is 84 and still chairman of the board, uh, was CEO for 40 years after his father was CEO for 45. Uh, he has told these stories so often that they are, he can do it in his sleep, and increasingly I'm getting to the same point. Uh, but his parents drove from Salt Lake to Washington uh, in a Ford. It took him about 12 days to do it. Uh, and when they got to Washington, they opened a nine-stool A&W root beer stand uh, in downtown Washington. And that was the beginning of the company. Uh, when the weather got cold, not as cold as Minnesota, of course, but when it got cold, they realized they needed hot food, and Alice Marriott went to the Mexican embassy and talked to the cook and got recipes for hot tamales and other things, put them on the menu, and the A&W root beer stand became the Hot Shops. And Hot Shops and the restaurant business was Marriott's first 30 years exclusively, uh, before the first hotel was opened in 1957. Uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And in many respects, the hotel business at Marriott grew with the traveling world that we now take for granted. Uh, you think about Eisenhower building the, the uh, interstate highway system in the 50s. Uh, before that, the notion of driving cross-country was a, a, a real adventurer's kind of thing. And by the time I was growing up uh, here in Minnesota, uh, in the 60s and 70s, everybody was driving everywhere. Uh, now, we didn't stay in hotels. Uh, my dad was a Lutheran preacher. Uh, not enough scratch, and to the extent he had money, he wasn't going to spend it on a hotel. So we uh, stayed with relatives or wherever we could find a place to stay. Uh, but the, the business grew in, in that way as our appetite as a community for travel grew. Uh, so that today, uh, we are uh, 1.1 million hotel rooms, uh, about 5,700 hotels. Uh, that includes 1,200 hotels that we uh, just brought into the family with the acquisition of Starwood, which we completed about a month ago, uh, a month ago Sunday, actually. So a, a very recent thing and something that I'm spending a lot of time with. Uh, we've got 30 brands, uh, and the only thing we're in today is the hotel business. Uh, in years past, we had restaurants, of course, but cruise ships and theme parks and food distribution and senior living and all sorts of other things. And basically, we discovered uh, that the thing that we were passionate about was the hotel business, and we ought to stay focused on what we really cared about. Uh, and so that's what we're doing exclusively today. Culturally, uh, we have a, a commitment to our culture. Uh, we talk uh, very uh, boldly about our associates coming before our guests. Uh, which is sort of upside down in the way most businesses talk about uh, what they do. Uh, it is uh, popular to say the customer always comes first. And of course, in a sense, we don't disagree with that. But we know that we can't get to our, our customers except through our associates. 
so we have to focus on our associates first. How do we work on creating careers? It's not a soft and squishy idea. It's not simply uh, we're going to put our arms around associates and tell them we love them. It is instead how do we empower them? Uh, how do we train them? How do we let them grow in their jobs? How do we put them in a position where they say, I am proud of what I do uh, in this hotel uh, or in this department of this hotel or in this sales office uh, to uh, make sure I'm delivering something that I can look at and say I'm proud of that. And so that, that focus on associates is a, a very powerful part of our culture. Two other aspects of our culture which we love. Uh, one is uh, we want to be engaged in the communities where we do business. Uh, because we think we can make those communities better for it, but also we think we create uh, better morale among our teams because they have a greater sense of meaning and depth in their work. It's great team building, uh, it's a great way for them to know what's happening in the communities, and they take pride in it. Uh, and so back to this motive question, it's a good thing, but it's also something which is in our interest because it makes us a better employer. And then I think the last aspect of our culture, which uh, the Starwood acquisition uh, really will amplify uh, going forward here, is we are absolutely relentless about embracing change. How do we uh, come up with a new brand? How do we grow in a new market? How do we uh, get a new restaurant concept? How do we come up with a new design? And make sure that we are not resisting change simply because we're changing things that we've done before. Enough, en enough commercial about Marriott. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the tough uh, issues that we've confronted and use them a little bit as uh, uh, examples that, uh, again, you can, I think many of you maybe will criticize some of the positions we've taken. And I'm an equal opportunity uh, speaker here in the sense that uh, some of these things will... Uh, rub, rub uh, liberals harder than conservatives, and some will be just the other way around. Uh, but, but there are best efforts to, go, to, to work through this. Um, I, have, uh, I know a few people in here have heard the story before, but every commencement speech I've done, I've used the same joke, and I'm going to use it tonight, uh, because I think it illustrates something about the divisive uh, society that we live in. Let me make, make sure I get it right here. Uh, so a woman in a hot air balloon realized she was lost. She lowered her altitude and spotted a man in a boat below. And she shouted to him, excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. So the man in the boat looked at his GPS and he replied, you're in a hot air balloon, approximately 30 feet above sea level. You're at 41 degrees, 27 minutes north latitude and 87 degrees, two minutes west longitude. She rolled her eyes and said, you must be a Republican. <laughs> I am, he replied. How did you know? Well, answered the woman in the balloon, everything you told me is technically correct, but totally irrelevant to my life. You've told me where I am, but I'm still lost. Frankly, you're not much help to me. The man smiled and responded, you must be a Democrat. I am, she replied. How did you know? Well, said the man, you don't know where you are or where you're going. You made a promise you have no idea how to keep. You're in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but somehow now it's all my fault. When I first told that story about five years ago or so, uh, it seemed, I thought, to really capture sort of the d device, political divisiveness we had uh, at the time. It now seems sort of old-fashioned and tame, uh, <laughs> because uh, if anything, we've gotten uh, much more divisive in uh, the era that we live in today, politically and in many other respects. And, and partly, of course, it's the political season, which uh, makes us all confront this all the time. Uh, but partly it's also the... Um, impulsiveness that uh, our devices maybe drive a little bit. Uh, we're, we're tweeting or we're sending emails or we're responding instantly, Instagram or, or Snapchat or whatever, whatever tools we're using, and we lose our civility in when we do it. Uh, because the, if you're frustrated and you, you immediately pull out that phone and you write something, 
the odds are afterwards you're going to think, oh my goodness, that was a, a little bit blunt. But that impulsiveness with divisiveness, I think, feeds this sort of uh, cynicism that causes us to question, again, maybe the motives of uh, what's being done, but also to question anybody who has a different point of view. Uh, and uh, that's the world we live in. Um, three recent uh, examples of uh, how this comes to play out in, in our business and what we've been through. Uh, a few years ago, we, uh, uh, we, we had some public communication about tipping housekeepers. Anybody see this? Um, a, f a friend of, of uh, mine, friend of Ruth's and mine, uh, had, a well-known woman, had a, a very high-profile divorce, and she left her home and checked into a hotel and stayed there for about a month. And she was uh, surprised that maybe for the first time she realized that we tip the men and not the women. Uh, and, and I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, the, it's usually men on the front drive, men who are bellmen who help you take your bags to your room. And because we have an interaction with them, we often give them a couple of bucks uh, or, or maybe more in a luxury hotel. Uh, in contrast, the housekeepers, typically women, uh, because we don't have an interaction with them, I mean, we might see them in the hallway, but we, we don't interact with them in our room, uh, many people don't ever think about it. Uh, and so she, she, she reached out and said, uh, we need to uh, communicate something about, uh, think about the housekeeper. Think about these women who are heroes of mine. Uh, they, they do extraordinary work. Uh, often thanklessly, uh, and it uh, probably won't surprise you, collectively we're not at our best when we're in hotel rooms. Uh, it's a little bit like, did, did you ever wash a rental car? Uh, prob probably not. Uh, but people stay in, guest, in the guest rooms of hotels, they don't, of course don't clean up, there's somebody to clean up for them, uh, and so these housekeepers get, a, get a, um, a special burden, and they persevere through this, and they really are extraordinary women almost always, not literally always, but almost always. And so we went out and we said, uh, you know, we encourage people to think about it. Not necessarily that you have to, uh, and, uh, but at the same time, uh, think about it. Uh, it was on the evening news program, essentially in every local uh, evening news across the country. Biggest story we had had in a decade. Uh, and the traditional media said, hey, do you, th do you tip housekeepers? Marriott came out and said something about tipping housekeepers. Everybody was intrigued by it. Uh, it was a, sort of a great story, great feel-good story. Uh, but the social media was devastating, absolutely devastating. You're doing this because you won't pay these women a fair, rate, fair wage. You're trying to offload your obligation as a good employer on us as guests. You, Arnie Sorensen, make too much money. Why don't you give them some of your money? And, and the, the, the social media words were often awful, simply awful. Uh, it's something that you would never stomach from a child or a peer or an employee or a boss or a friend. Uh, you'd be embarrassed to read it afterwards. Uh, but again, it's out there in this world in which we're impulsive and we, don't, we really don't trust anybody. Uh, now, we anticipated we'd get a little bit of that feedback. We still thought it was the right thing to do. I was in, uh, a week later, I was in the New York Marriott Marquis, which is a 2,000-room hotel in Times Square, uh, and I was talking to the housekeepers on the floor I was staying in, and suddenly I had five or six around. I said, what's happening? Uh, are, are, are you getting tips? And uh, they were filled with hugs, uh, filled with hugs actually even before we started talking about tips, because they were proud of their work. Uh, but when asked about the tips, said, yeah, I, I'm getting tips, and this is wonderful. Uh, and I don't regret for a minute uh, the fact that we went out and, and encouraged that to happen, even though there were these negative uh, comments. Uh, second example. Within essentially the same month or two, about two years ago, uh, I was deluged with emails, so much so that essentially my uh, email uh, inbox was rendered unusable. Um, uh, emails coming in every few seconds. You know, so overnight you might have 3,000 emails or 4,000 emails. Uh, one set came in because we had a group in a hotel in Arizona uh, that had a conference on reparative therapy. 
People know what reparative therapy is. It's basically counseling uh, gay people to make them straight, uh, which in uh, liberal society particularly is uh, a total outrage. Uh, and so by and large, those emails were coming in from folks who were saying, how can you possibly let those people m meet in your hotel? We're going to boycott you. Uh, within a month, I get a similar deluge of emails uh, from a uh, group of folks objecting to the fact that the CAIR, which I think is the Council for American Islamic Relations, something like that, I might have it uh, a little bit off, uh, that they met in one of our hotels in Washington and they're Islamic and they're connected somehow to terrorists and we should have never let them meet in our hotels. And they were going to boycott us. Uh, and it, it, again, the, the language around some of these uh, emails, pretty, pretty chilling stuff. Uh, I think the response is easy. Now, you, you can reach a different conclusion uh, and go back to this question about, okay, what is your faith, what, what kind of decision would you make if you brought your faith to that question? Uh, but from my perspective, we are in the hospitality business. We welcome everybody. We don't ask you what you believe when you check into a hotel, politically or religiously or in any other respect. Uh, and, of course, if it's illegal, you're not going to meet in our hotel. Uh, but we're not going to sit in judgment on uh, every uh, set of principles or, or every uh, set of views, if you will, of the folks who individually check into our hotels or the groups that meet. Uh, last example, uh, and this is one that very much continues today, and this is again around uh, LGBT issues primarily. Uh, probably started with the Indiana legislation that uh, Mike Pence signed when he was governor about a year and a half ago. Uh, and that was a uh, uh, law in Indiana that basically said uh, religious freedom, we believe, should permit businesses to refuse service uh, to people who are gay, and, gay or lesbian. If you know, the, the notion essentially being that if that's inconsistent with your faith and you're running a business, you should be permitted to say, uh, you can't come. Uh, I spoke out against that. Uh, now, I, I was uh, coincidentally speaking at a LGBT conference about two days after the governor signed the bill in New York. Uh, I didn't know that there were uh, TV cameras there. I'm not sure I would have done anything differently had I known it. Uh, but I came out and said the law is absolute madness uh, and it's not fair to the people of Indiana uh, who are hospitable people, who welcome people. Uh, and uh, it's going to be bad for business in Indiana uh, and it's bad for business generally, I think. Uh, if you're going to be in, if, if, your, if your religious points of view or other points of view cause you not to be willing to do business with somebody, well then you should be in a different business. Would we let somebody say no because they're black? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I uh, made a comment. Of course, that ended up in the news all over the place. In uh, April or May of 2015, which is when this occurred, uh, I did get some blowback, but, but maybe only 100 messages, uh, and, uh, which in the scheme of things was not very much, and an awful lot of uh, sort of positive commentary. This year, with the bathroom wars in North Carolina, uh, where there is already a profound impact, a billion dollars of business is, uh, to North Carolina has left the state, uh, the NBA All-Star Game being the most prominent of them. Uh, but basically here you've got Charlotte and the state moving in different directions uh, to create an issue about who should use which bathroom. We have a few bathrooms in North Carolina and in other markets around the world. And I have yet to find anybody who's ever complained about who uses which bathroom. It's, 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 not, it's not an issue at all. Uh, in real life, it's not an issue. Uh, I've never had a, a, a customer come and say, you know, somebody told me I couldn't use the bathroom I wanted. Or another customer say, I saw somebody in the bathroom I was using and they shouldn't have been there and I insist that you kick them out. But we end up now with this uh, set of, of bathroom issues and we've spoken out about that too. Uh, and uh, basically said, we think that legislation is wrong. Uh, it's not fair to the people of North Carolina. It's not good for business. And it's creating divisiveness where it never existed before uh, because nobody, nobody had a problem with this. 
uh, in the year and a few months between those two episodes, Indiana and North Carolina, the difference in the social media response was night and day. Massive this year. We are more divided this year and more cynical and more angry and more willing to use words that shouldn't be used in civilized company than we were even just a year ago. Now, you, you can have a debate, and I, I actually uh, quite respect uh, folks saying, it's not your place to speak about that issue. Uh, you're running a hotel business, uh, and this is something that people have strong feelings about, uh, and sometimes they have strong feelings about it in a way that they connect with their faith. Uh, but this one, we thought, no, we do speak out about this because we're in the hospitality business, and we are fighting to welcome everybody, no matter who they are, uh, and no matter where they've come from, and no matter what color their skin is, and no matter what lifestyle they have, uh, because we want to embrace people who are moving around the world and doing the things that they do. Uh, the response on this most recent one uh, does often lead to some sadness or pessimism or, or um, concern, I suppose, about the kind of society that we live in. Uh, but a, a recent, a recent, I'll close with this, a recent example of something that I think gives a lot of hope. Uh, after being in the Middle East and uh, stopping by that mosque, we, we went to Dubai for a day and then we flew to Kigali, Rwanda, where we just opened the Marriott in Kigali. Uh, Rwanda, as I suspect all of you know, uh, 21 years ago, had a million people bludgeoned to death in 90 days. Uh, the Hutus and the Tutsis uh, went after each other, and it was genocidal, awful. Uh, today in Rwanda, you see a country filled with optimism. Uh, we opened a hotel, proud to open a hotel. It's not particularly relevant to us financially. It's one hotel in a, in a very big company. Uh, but in that hotel, there will be 250 Rwandans working. Uh, those jobs will absolutely transform their lives. Uh, there were 37 young women already working there who went, uh, graduated from the Aquila Girls School uh, near Kigali. Uh, virtually all of them orphans uh, who have had extraordinarily difficult uh, family stories, uh, but who show up with absolutely winning smiles and this enthusiasm for how their future can be different from their past or their parents' past. Uh, and you see that, and you see in that hotel people from all over the world, all colors, uh, all, all faiths, uh, who are experiencing Rwanda, who are experiencing not just the hotel, but this, the place. Uh, and you see this ability to, to uh, actually break down some of the things that divide uh, and bring us back together. And uh, it's one thing I pray for. Uh, and when we get a chance to, to uh, contribute a little bit to that, it makes what I do extremely special. So thank you all for uh, listening tonight. I don't know if we have time for a few questions. Do we? Yeah. We thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll let you rest your voice for a second. I will make a few quick announcements. I always like to uh, lift up the next event in our series, which you will see listed in your program. It's Jeremy Cowart. Uh, we'll give you a break for Christmas and the New Year. This is uh, February 2nd, again, here in this location. Uh, one of my colleagues, Pastor Cheryl Matheson, heard him speak um, last year and was just smitten by him. Uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating talk. So join us for that. If you would like us, if you don't get our emails, feel free to go to our website, sign up for emails. You can leave your email on this green sheet. You can offer suggestions for future speakers on this green sheet. And of course, you can go to our Faith and Life or Facebook page as well. Um, I'm going to, at our last, our first Faith and Life event this year, I did something I almost never do which was, I mentioned another event, which was not a Faith in Life event. It's relevant, though, tonight, so I'm going to mention it again. It happened a couple weeks ago um, in another room here at St. Philip the Deacon. Uh, it was a presentation by a gentleman named Jeff Van Duzer, 
who is formerly the dean of the business school and is now the provost of Seattle Pacific. And he gave a three-hour talk about the question, does business matter to God? And Arnie has, I think, spoken beautifully about some of the ways faith impacts a person who's a very important businessman in the world. Um, Jeff Van Duzer unpacks that a bit. So if you want to hear someone talk about that at greater length, what I will tell you tonight is I will post um, the podcast or the video cast of that talk on the Faith and Life site or on the St. Philip Deacon site. So look for that in the next day or two. Um, it was really excellent. I also always want to pause to say thank you. Um, these events, I say this, I've said it now for 14 years because it's true. Uh, these events are not uh, part of the budget of this congregation. Every year we raise the funds that allow us to bring in speakers like Arnie and the other speakers over the course of the year. But would not be possible without the generosity of the corporations and individuals who are listed in your program. And I really hope, uh, hospitality is a big deal for us too. I always feel badly if we get mistakes in them. So if we did, my apologies and please see me afterwards. But I want to thank uh, Mastercraft, Jeff and Patrice and Productivity, Greg and Lisa, Rapid Packaging, Phil and Mona, uh, Jim at Thrivent, uh, Cressa, Jim and Ruth Ann, uh, Honeybee Capital is actually an East Coast company, a former speaker who is now supporting the series, which is wonderful. Joe at Motive Action, thank you. Uh, Joe and Don, uh, and Bruce at Sparky, as well as Anselm House, Fuzzy Duck, uh, Luther Seminary, and the two churches, and all of the individuals who are listed here. Um, again, we couldn't do this without your support. Many of these individuals are here tonight. Will you join me in thanking them for making this possible? Um, a couple of other thanks. Um, one of the questions I get, maybe more than any other, is where do you find these speakers? Uh, and after 14 years, there's no simple answer to that question, but uh, there are sometimes specific people who deserve a word of thanks. And in the case of Arnie being with us, I want to thank Bob Paulson. Bob, where are you? Bob Paulson, who serves on the Luther Board of Regents with Arnie, and also John and Jennifer Salveson, who are related to Arnie. Both of them are members of this church. Thank you for helping to make this evening possible. Will you join me in thanking them as well? Um, I often give a shout out to Jeff Elstead. Jeff, thank you for your music. He's been with us for 14 years. I'm so grateful to you for your friendship and your music. Thank you very much. And this is a thank, oh, thank you, yeah. I, I have never, I don't think, called this one out before, but it seems highly appropriate. If you look at the bottom of the sponsors on your right-hand page, you will notice some in-kind supporters. The very last one listed, not because it's the mo least important, but that's just where it shows up, um, is our local residence in by Marriott, there we go. which I want to let you know, seriously, they have been a wonderful partner for, gosh, seven or eight years in helping us uh, host uh, speakers. So on behalf of Marriott, thank you very much. Or on behalf of this series, thank you to Marriott. Um, all right, we do have some time for some questions. Um, we have uh, mics here and here. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll sort of play it by ear, but if people have questions, uh, please come up to one of the mics and uh, you'll have a chance to ask. And while you're thinking about questions, I will tell you, when I was framing up this year's series, I was acutely aware that this is, of course, an election year. Um, I did think for a while about bringing in a presidential historian, and there were a few that I considered. Uh, in the end, that did not work out, but I'm kind of grateful that you lifted up the fact that we do live in a divisive society. And I will tell you, after 14 years, we have brought in speakers all over the map, politically and in every other conceivable way, and that comes from a deep sense that we do live in a divided, divisive culture. And I think it's important for us to come together and speak rationally and compassionately about issues, which we may not agree about, but where we can come and actually think through uh, in the context of faith. So thank you for lifting up some of that. Okay, Paul, yeah. Can you speak more about the MIA? By, by the way that you live it? Is it more the living and the showing than the living and the telling? 
Yeah, so I don't know if everybody can hear this, but it's just uh, talking a little bit more about the, the comment, maybe I'm a coward for not, for not pushing my faith more. There's a line here, though, between uh, work life and other life, uh, in a sense. And, and, of course, the line for me is very fuzzy. The, the, the days don't have a clean start and a clean end. Uh, and often the conversations don't necessarily even have a clean, you know, you're, you're in your personal life or you're in your work life. But I was focused on the work piece. So I, I don't think there is anything uh, inconsistent or wrong in my being active in our congregation in Washington. Uh, and uh, participating with other members of that church in very faith-focused conversations uh, and being engaged in the neighborhood uh, to, to find more members of that church and to do other things. But I do that not as CEO of Marriott. I do that as a member of Augustana Lutheran Church. Uh, not, I, I don't have to go in and say I'm not the CEO of Marriott, but it's also a very different context. And I think when the when the f conversation is focused on, well, what are you doing in the office? Or what are you doing when you're touring hotels that are in the portfolio? Or what are you doing when you're with your business partners and business customers? Then I, then I, uh, I sort of pull back a little bit. How many, how many of, of the crowd is Lutheran? Is this a pretty Lutheran group? The, um, you know, one, one of the, I think one of the, so this gets away from work a little bit, uh, but one of the challenges of, Lutheranism and Protestantism, mainline Protestant church in the, churches in the United States, is I think we've done better embracing every point of view than we've necessarily done describing our point of view. Uh, and it is great to be inclusive, uh, but if you're so inclusive that you actually uh, are not deliberately saying this is what I believe uh, and having the willingness to articulate that at least to yourself, uh, maybe to your family, uh, maybe more broadly to a community. If, you don't, if you're not taking at least that, that much of a step, we end up with a big risk, which is that we don't stand for anything uh, when it's all said and done. And one of the reasons I think we see so much vibrancy in other churches, often independent churches today, but in other faiths too, is they are, they are creating much more energy around saying, this is what I believe, uh, and, and sort of standing up and defending that. And I think, we can, I think we can do both, which is to say, we can in fact believe something and believe it fervently, but we can also say, if you believe something different, I still respect you as, as a human being and, and uh, uh, can embrace you in that way. It seems to me what you have said uh, relates to a Lutheran sense of vocation uh, with reference to ethical issues, how you treat other people. That's not out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, could you, have you, can you articulate something about a Lutheran sense of vocation, vocation in what you're doing? Or is that too... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can do it any better in answer to that question than I did it just now. <laughs> the, um, you know, Luther, of course, talked about the two kingdoms, uh, including very much the kingdom here on earth. Uh, and, uh, and at least culturally, I think, I don't know how much this is theological, and, and, and you need people with much greater expertise than I have for that. But, but I think uh, culturally, we embrace this world. This is the place not only two vocations, though, but also that every vocation is something that God calls us to. The janitor, the CEO, the principal, what, what the, we the do clergy on person. this earth has meaning. Right, about. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. I have a question about leadership development. In the Lutheran Church, looking ahead at our need for pastors, especially. Uh, we see a great need for leaders and a, and a gap between where, where we are now and what we're going to need over the next decade or so. I'm very, I was intrigued by your thoughts on how you develop leaders and, and develop careers. If you were to think of some of your best practices at Marriott and think about that issue within the Lutheran Church, what ideas might you share with us to develop new leaders? 
I, I should give the mic, mic to my father-in-law, Paul. We've been, we've been talking about Lutheran preachers <laughs> and the, the, ch the challenge of finding them and, uh, and uh, the challenges that they face in the world we live in today. I think, that, I think the, the worlds are so different, though. So the, the, the uh, principal things we try and do to make sure we're building great talent is give people room to make decisions uh, and uh, make sure that they've they've got room to run, uh, they've got room to experiment, uh, they've got room to, to learn. Uh, obviously there's a team of people around them uh, and so you can have a lot of fun in doing that and you can create an environment in which uh, you can disagree and which you can try things and fail. Uh, and uh, of course we have the resources to pay people well, you know, so we, we don't end up with that challenge. In too many of our churches, unlike yours here, Tim, where you've got a team of 20, you said, right? Uh, this place is extraordinarily blessed. Our church in Washington has one pastor, one organist slash choir director, uh, one custodian, and one person in the office, I think, basically. I think that's the full team. And the pastor has to do everything. Uh, there's not a team. Uh, and hopefully we pay him fairly, but, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very different world. And so they're to say, we're going to give them room to make decisions. Well, they got it. They got to, they got to make them all. Uh, I, I, uh, again, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily expert here, but I think that one thing I wonder about is whether the structure of the church, the synod offices, create enough of an environment about building pastors up as leaders, training, sharing best practices, sharing what's failed, uh, as opposed to uh, helping the call process or helping with a problem pastor someplace who needs to be moved from one congregation to another. And I think often our synod offices are consumed by those crises and not necessarily uh, focused on how do we build this, this uh, sense of team, even if you're a pastor that's alone in their church, so that you can feel like you're with others You've got moral support. You're learning from somebody. I, you know, I don't know if that's an answer to the question. Thank you. Quick thoughts that come to mind. I'm part of a congregation whose senior pastor likes to say, we practice Marriott hospitality here. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> what does that mean to you? Uh, it really means a genuine welcome, uh, which, which can be communicated, obviously, in different words, but communicated uh, differently in different cultures around the world. Uh, but it is uh, a sort of feet on the ground welcome uh, that is the kind of welcome we'd all give to somebody who came to our house who you really wanted to see. And it's just a very authentic, we're glad you're here. This is, this is like a tennis match. <laughs> I didn't bring my racket. Um, I'm curious about the policy of Marriott regarding the Word of God in the rooms. I know there's sometimes conflicts. I just would like you to maybe touch on that and then explain the policy that you have with possible conflicts or how do you handle that? Yeah. And, and, and is it real? Do you have it? Yeah, the, uh, I, I read um, a travel magazine on the plane today coming in from, uh, from the East Coast. can't remember, Condé Nast Traveler or something. I don't remember which magazine it was. But, but one of the, the uh, travel writers talked about, uh, she said, I'm no longer in any way religious or active in, in my, her Catholic heritage. But she said, I find comfort when I get to a hotel room and I open the drawer and see that Bible. I never look at it. But to me, it's a... It's a it's, it's, and that was just today. Uh, now we've, we've, had, we've had conversations, the, the, the Marriott's are, are Mormons, uh, so in most of our hotels in the United States you'll find the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Uh, the, and I don't recall in 20 years at Marriott ever hearing a complaint from a guest. Uh, they are in a drawer usually, uh, they're, they're not in anybody's face. Uh, they're, they're supplied by the Gideons or by the Mormon church. They're actually not something our hotel owners uh, use their own resources to buy. 
we have the Quran often in, in uh, Arab markets uh, or Muslim markets uh, in the rest of the world, but not always. Uh, and um, I, th I suspect we'll keep it that way. Um, I, I think uh, it, we've got now some lifestyle brands, uh, W, and there's a W here in the old Fauché Tower, which was part of the Starwood portfolio. I don't know whether the Bible is in the W. Uh, is it? Is it? How about that? Uh, but some of these lifestyle hotels are, you know, they're, they're a little edgier, uh, and so that, that, uh, there's maybe a little bit more dissonance there. But again, it's not something people complain about. One question I have, and that is, you know, your, your role seems larger than life. I wonder how you balance it. And then the, the question I have is, what are the most important decisions that you make uh, as a leader uh, of the company? Uh, those are uh, two, two uh, big questions. Um, life balance, I I'll probably confess I have little of. Okay. Um, but I, I love my work uh, and because I get a lot of joy out of it. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't leave it with uh, exhaustion usually. Uh, and so when we're together, and you know, we're together with our uh, four kids as often as we can be, uh, we get uh, we get great time together and have a good time together and are active together. And you do the best you do the best that you can. Uh, most important things about leadership are picking and motivating people. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I, I'm blessed to work at a big company where we've got lots of resources. And I say only uh, partly tongue-in-cheek that I really don't have to do much uh, because somebody else is responsible for everything. <laughs> L literally. Um, so I, I'm a mission developer with the LCA, focusing on developing reinvention churches where people have given up on church, faith in God. Um, uh, so I'm kind of interested in the Marriott as a learning institution, as you said, a learning organization that's obviously trying to keep up with where trends are going. So today we have Airbnbs, and everybody, I've stated at Airbnb at two. My guess is it's kind of a thorn in your flesh, not a real problem, but yeah. I don't know, that might be interesting to hear. For us as a church, we now are in the situation that people, rather than coming to our churches, they'd rather do almost anything. Um, they're not showing up. <laughs> there, are, there are notable exceptions, and people have not left the church, but uh, um, by and large, the population is, that is going to church is aging and yep. is getting smaller. Um, so from maybe from that learning organization perspective on how you continue to keep the Marriott brand oriented towards so people say, no, you know, we don't just have to come here. We want to stay here. Yeah. You got words of wisdom for us. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, you'll make even a lot more money. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that they're Marriott lessons. I mean, I, I think Marriott, uh, we... Um, Bill Murray used to, said to me about the day I started work, he said, training is the way we tell people we care about them. Uh, because you're prepared to invest something in uh, their, their growth. Uh, and now, that was a comment 20 years ago when training was a, a um, sort of a lecture in a room someplace. Uh, and I think training today has some of that. Uh, but it also is much more amorphous in many respects. But there's still a, a piece of that, which is how do you, how do you um, invest in people in a way that causes them to grow, but when they see that investment in them also causes them to say, okay, what are the things that I think we should be doing differently so that we can continue to be relevant and, and change and the rest of it. Uh, this trend about uh, all of us being less churched, less likely to go to church, uh, I th the churches are less relevant. Uh, in many respects, the, the, the uh, community of the church is not as tight as a community as it used to be. I think about growing up, Mary and I grew up in, when we came back to the States in St. Anthony Park, which is over in St. Paul, uh, and uh, everybody walked from the neighborhood to the church on Sunday morning, uh, and we had uh, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or Sunday School or, you know, something else happening during the week, and it was a a set of relevant social connections as well as, uh, of course, the, the, uh, the worship service on a Sunday. 
And, and you know, what Ruth and I see is increasingly church is about Sunday morning only uh, because the weeks are too busy. It's hard to get there. Uh, you got kids who are maybe not, nobody's walking. To work. We don't walk to church. We, we drive five miles to church. Uh, and I think that, that tenuousness uh, is, um, is hard to counteract. If we can counteract it successfully, it, it, to, to, to me, I think it is, how do you make it more relevant to our lives? Not to, dis, not to de-emphasize the worship, which is fundamental, but how do you create uh, enough activity, which is probably what you're doing in the churches you're trying to start. How do you, how do you create these connections so people say, this is relevant to me. It's relevant to the, to the community that I want to be part of and, and uh, the impact that community can have on, on uh, you know, the neighborhood we're in or on global hunger or on whatever, whatever activities we decide to be involved in. Yeah, just uh, a last word to that. Uh, we've kind of identified for us the kind of core theological um, words that we really feel we need to address to re-engage people or people who are never engaged is relevance and value, yep. which sound like, where are those in the Bible? Well, actually, they're everywhere, just not those words used. But yep. where is the relevance and value here? So that would make this my community and yep. make it my life. Thank you. Good. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so I'm only asking this because you led into it in one of your stories about the housekeepers and how people were emailing you saying, well, you should give some of your salary to, to increase the wages of the housekeepers. Yeah. You brought up an area of divisiveness that we're seeing more and more as far as the people at the top and what they're making yeah. and then everybody else. And we've seen it with the EpiPen situation. And I wondered if you can speak to this divisiveness of the people at the top and then everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's obviously one of the big issues we face as a society today. Uh, and I, I think it is as um, recognized as important an issue in both sides of that divisiveness. Uh, so I participate in an outfit called the Business Council, which is 150 public company CEOs. And they're all, they all make a ton of money. They all are, are too fancy by half. Uh, and uh, the, the list of issues that that group will put on the, on the board as really important ones include income inequality because it, is, it can be corrosive. Maybe it is becoming corrosive. Uh, and I, don't th- I, I, I would never stand here and try and explain why I make what I make. I, I, don't, I don't really know why I make what I make, to tell you the truth, but, but I, I'm, I'm blessed with it, and I guess I guess should be pleased by that. Uh, at the same time, I, I personally think we'd be much better off increasing the minimum wage. Uh, we'd be much be- better off investing even more in education. Uh, we probably could do some more graduation in the tax rates and some other things. Those become, too, though, start to be pretty divisive issues depending on where you are in the political spectrum. Uh, you'll get more than you really want here, I'm afraid, but uh, we, we uh, because the politics are hard, we haven't had a serious discussion in Washington, at the federal level, about raising the minimum wage through the entire Obama administration. Uh, I've talked to President Obama about this and said, you ought to use it. And basically his response is, I don't think I can get it through. Uh, and, and we need to have an honest debate where we say, okay, how much can we move it? And if you move it too far, too fast, there will be an impact on jobs. But people will, will get by with fewer, fewer folks. But so get the economists in and have communities basically say, what do we think is the right, uh, right answer for us? And let's have the, the respect for each other so that we can say, what's the right policy for us to have, as opposed to refuse to do anything, uh, which is what we've done on the federal level. Now, you've got uh, some states and cities that have moved, uh, sometimes, I think, very honestly with, an, with a great debate about what the right levels are, and I applaud them for that, uh, sometimes in ways that are much more convoluted uh, and, um, and a little bit difficult. But this, I mean, this is a place that... Uh, it's, I think it's really important we get through the divisiveness so that we can have people work together and try and figure out solutions to it. Thanks. Okay, I think, let's do one more. Tim, you can have a last one. I think this is in the history of the series, the first time we have ever gone right, left, right, left, right, left, without <laughs> exception. So 
I'm not going to say any more about that, but yeah. Yeah, careful. Um, so a couple of the points that were brought up tonight, the, the divisiveness that you addressed, and then also um, the dwindling number of people physically coming to church, I think there's an underlying theme that you touched on a little bit, um, but being the, one of the millennials here, I'll, I'll ask this. Yeah, you're probably um, the youngest guy here. <laughs> <laughs> so I think technology drives a lot of that, certainly the, the dwindling number of people physically coming to church, but, but also the, the divisiveness and, and the, the boldness of some opinions that you addressed in, in your scenario. So how can we kind of start to teach or create more of a culture of, of social media and, and technology responsibility and, and tolerance? Because 95% of the people making those types of comments aren't going to do it on the phone or in person, right? So how can we start to create that type of culture? Or, or maybe how has Marriott used their, their platform, specifically in technology, that fosters that? Uh, that's a good question, and you have to solve it, because you're the millennial. <laughs> the, um, I, you know, I don't know. I think on some level, hopefully, we'll get used to it and basically say, well, that doesn't count because that's a social media comment and you really shouldn't take it seriously. Uh, and and we're going we're gonna to recognize that those comments are sort of inherently suspect. Uh, but I, it, it'll be interesting to see over the course of the next decade, say, uh, do we become, uh, what, better masters of our devices? Uh, and sometimes I think we are, uh, the, the people understand that their phone is not everything. Uh, they may want to share, take pictures and, and send them around and do some other things, but unless they've got a deliberate thing to do with that, you see more and more people saying, I'm, I'm going to put my phone aside, I'm not going to look at it. Uh, it, it. You know, what we do in our building, I go, to a, you know, I go down the hall to uh, our, our principal meeting room, and sadly we'll have meet, meetings that last four or five or six hours. I don't bring a phone into that room. Uh, and the team doesn't bring a phone into that room uh, because we want to be focused on the conversation that we're having. Otherwise, you're distracted and you're not doing justice to either thing. Uh, and I think we need to, to uh, collectively do the same thing in our personal lives. You put that phone aside, go get it when you need to check your messages, which you might do half a dozen times a day, but you, you think about how many hours that leaves for you if you don't have it otherwise. But you solve it. Thank you. <laughs> Good, good luck with that, Tim. Yeah. I'm going to give you this. I want to thank you all again for coming out tonight. I think that you're willing to stick around and greet people in the narthex. I know you've got a meeting early tomorrow, but before we let you walk out there, uh, we give to each of our speakers a little gift of appreciation. It's a piece of granite that says, with thanks to Arnie Sorensen for bringing faith to life. We thank you so much thank for you. being with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.